Hello and welcome to the Talking Health Tech podcast. I'm Victoria Betton, your host for this special holiday episode, and I'm also host of the Digital Ecology podcast, and we're a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Network. On my podcast, I delve into the intricate tapestry of technology adoption in UK's healthcare system. That journey takes us beyond the surface, exploring the real stories and challenges faced in transforming healthcare enabled by digital. I aim to unravel the complexities, confront the realities, moving beyond the hype to understand the true impact of technology in healthcare. And I'm lucky to speak with all sorts of experts who provide invaluable insight into this evolving landscape, where expectation often doesn't quite meet reality. Today, since you're a fan of the Talking Health Tech podcast, I'd like to share one episode from my podcast I think you might like. It's an episode that resonates with the themes we often explore here at Talking Health Tech a deep dive into the role of simulation in designing, testing and implementing digital in health. I'm joined by Wendy and Kip from the University of Melbourne, where they have an amazing simulation space called the Validitron, and James Willard, a child psychiatrist and chief clinical information officer in a healthcare organisation in England. So I do hope you enjoy. And if you like this one, make sure you subscribe to the Digital Ecology podcast available in the show notes of this episode for even more like it. Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. Welcome to the first episode of Series 2 of the Digital Ecology Podcast. And today, a first for me, I've got a little panel. So a group of us having a conversation about the role of simulation at all stages of digital health, whether it be in designing, developing, procuring, and even implementing digital technologies, there is a role for simulation. So our conversation is going to be about um, just that. And today, I'm really delighted to be joined by James Willard. James Willard is a CAM psychiatrist and chief clinical information officer for a mental health and community trust. And he's also a policy specialist advisor for NHS England. And um, James and I have known each other and worked together for a very long time. And we've had many a conversation about the role of simulation and even delivered a project on the topic. And then I'm also really um, super delighted to be joined by Wendy Chapman and Kit, all the way from uh, Melbourne, the University of Melbourne. Um, We met when I was in Melbourne a few months ago, and I visited their amazing Validitron, which is an immersive digital health simulation lab. So we're going to find out about how it actually works in practice. Wendy is the Associate Dean for Digital Health in the Centre for Digital Health Transformation, and Kit is a researcher particularly working on the Validitron. So everybody, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Fabulous. Great great to be here, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you. Listen, James, can you just get us going by, let's just not think about digital to start off with. Let's think about the role of simulation more generally in medical and nurse and other training, because I think it's important to understand that when we're working with health professionals, they're used to simulation. So just tell us a bit about how simulations are part of training. Yeah, so uh, simulation is increasingly a part of kind of medical school training and uh, I think nursing training as well as other allied health professionals. And, and I suppose when we talk about simulation, it, it can be in, in, in lots of levels of fidelity, if we call it. So there can be kind of low fidelity where 
you know, as a medical student, you might practice with your colleagues kind of rehearsing a, an, an exam or a, a kind of particular line of questioning when you're kind of getting used to that. Or it can be more high fidelity and, and, and colleagues going into kind of very specialised facilities. Uh, you know, most of our, uh, well, regionally uh, in England, there, there, there are kind of simulation centres. So, for example, uh, at Imperial College in London and southwest London, St. George's, but there are kind of across across the the uk kind of these simulation centers which have highly specialized kind of sets of equipment you know mannequins that can pretend to be sick in particular ways and and i guess traditionally certainly in my experience med- in in medical training uh, simulation has been used for those kind of high acuity situations looking at human factors elements around for example resus uh, situations where you're thinking about you know, situational awareness and job roles where you've got particular people carrying out particular tasks and they need to stay focused on that. Well, there needs to be somebody maintaining that kind of situational awareness. So I think we've used in that kind of safety driven in learning from kind of airline industries and other kind of safety critical industries. We've taken that on in those kind of safety critical elements of medical training, you know, inserting uh, for example, inserting lines into people in terms of putting in IV drips or kind of doing intubation through anesthesia. Um, so I think that's the kind of background of of, of kind of simulation in, in uh, medical school and kind of maybe some sort of uh, you know nursing training. I think more recently it's kind of come into kind of more softer skills, if we can call that. So, for example, in uh, South London and Maudsley, um, they have um, a sort of mental health, physical health, kind of simulation course where they bring people from physical health settings so acute hospitals into kind of mental health uh, scenarios where they might be managing a very distressed agitated person in A&E and thinking about the soft skills if you like that they might use to kind of de-escalate that situation which again I think is a, a kind of a growth of, of, of the areas that simulation is, is covering and I think not to press you know I, I, I think our conversation here kind of how do we then take that kind of simulation-based approach into kind of thinking about digital health technology adoption? Thank you, James. And I think it's, you've just reminded me that when I did my social work training, we did a form of simulation as well. So we would record ourselves interacting and then play it back and adapt our, whatever it was, our interactions as a result. So, so yes, I guess, I guess it's familiar in, in social care as well as health. So Wendy, tell us about your team, the Validitron and what you're hoping to achieve because it was amazing to look at so it'd be great if you could sort of describe it for people and and tell us a bit about what your aims are and your goals with the Validitron. Sure and first let me start with the story because we think of simulation as being really important for education Uh, but when it comes to digital health people develop tools and they just put them in the healthcare system and expect them to work well. Now first of all healthcare organizations are very you know worried about that and risk averse and be, because of that, digital health has, uh, a, there's a big gap between a great idea and a cool product and implementing it into a real scenario. And when I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the mid 2000s, a children's hospital there decided to implement a new IT system that would support computerized order entry. Uh, and they took this system out of the box. They turned off their old system. They turned on the new system with no practice, no customization, And then a year later, they wrote an article about how many children died because of this IT system. And it was really, it was their implementation that they didn't test it out in, you know, offline, first of all, customize it, test it in small settings and and go through that process. And so I think this is something that 
it's not easy for people to do that. So we need ways to support digital health companies, researchers, and government in really simulating the use of these digital health interventions so that we can work out the kinks and figure out the best way to use them because they aren't, you don't just put a tool into a system. It it makes complete changes. It's ripples everywhere and everything changes from the relationships between the people to their workflow, um, to the way that they think and practice. And so we need to be testing in a more simulated way. So the Digital Health Politatron is a platform to support that kind of simulated testing, co-designing, and validating of all the components to prepare it for use in a real healthcare setting. Thank you so much, Wendy. And I wonder whether, Kit, you could maybe just describe if we were visiting the Validatron, what what it looks like, what's going on in there, and then maybe tell us a bit about your role and the sort of research that you're doing. So within the Validatron, we have three immersive physical environments at the moment. We have a a hospital wardroom that has everything you'd expect to see in that hospital bed equipment. Uh, We have a GP environment that's set up with a GP desk, an examination couch, uh, all the paraphernalia you'd expect to see when you go to see your GP. And we also have a home environment, which is um, connected to that environment, the GP environment, so that we can run studies where, for example, people are doing virtual care, people are maybe speaking to their clinician or practitioner from their home environment. And each of those spaces has um, one-way glass so that you can observe what's going on in that if you're running a scenario. But we also have cameras and can capture everything that's going on on the screens or devices in that room. And and it's really meant to be a flexible space. So you can do everything from very informal, early discussions where you might just want to say, you know, how does this work currently? If we're thinking about bringing a new digital tool into that space, what's the the starting point? And, And we find, I think, for... A lot of developers, even developers who've worked in digital health for a long time, just that basic awareness of what every day looks like and what the challenges with existing tools look like are really quite, you know, the awareness of that is quite low. Um, But we can also then, you know, go further than that and actually run, for example, formal scenarios or or, or studies where, for example, there's a, a strict set of procedures to be followed and you want to capture data around those and then maybe analyze that in a more formal way. And that's useful from a research point of view, um, understanding you know, where the pain points are and making recommendations to improve tools. But, but one of the things we're also starting to see is that from an evidence generation point of view, you know, the expectation that you've been through those kinds of testing steps is actually ratcheting up the priority list of, of things that need to be done when developing tools. So this is also a resource for that. And Kit, am I right in, in thinking that as well as having the physical space, you've also got a sort of data platform and an electronic patient record that people can play around with as well. Could you maybe say a bit about that side, the software side of things? Yeah, and I, and I think this is perhaps where we, we, we bridge from a, a traditional simulation environment to something that's specifically designed for digital health. And, and to return to Wendy's point about trying to make this easier, it, digital tools increasingly have to fit into a landscape of, of you know, other digital uh, uh, environments be they full electronic medical records or or other tools. And actually getting access to those for innovators is really quite hard for really good reasons around, you know, governance and cost. So uh, our aim in building this facility from the start was to try and make it easy to deal with that as well. So for the the physical space, there's also a virtual counterpart, which is what we call the sandbox. And and what that means is when you come into the space, we can set up the uh, tools you'd expect to see if you were going into that in a real space. So if there was an electronic medical record, we can provide that in the sandbox. And then that gives you 
something to test against from a technical point of view. But I think more importantly, if you're thinking from a human factors user point of view, you can actually put together more complete and more complex workflows, which you know, maybe start in one tool, move to the one you're testing, and then maybe back again. And I think, you know, if you, if you think about why tools fail, it's often that handoff between one platform and another or the total time to complete a task, which is the thing that's actually determining whether something will work or not or be acceptable or not. Thank you, Kit. And, and James, coming back to you, um, I know the conversations we've had have been about how might you use the sort of simulation lab environments that are typically used by um, medical students and so on. I, I'm guessing that you'll agree with Envy hearing Kit and Wendy talk about um, their simulation lab. Maybe could we just have a bit of a conversation about what the differences are and the extent to which you need something that's dedicated towards digital health or the extent to which you might be able to use a medical facility? Well, I think that's a, a really interesting question in terms of, and I think I think you've got to be clear about um, what your aims and uh, are for the simulation experience that you're trying to get out, out of it in order to then think about the level of fidelity you need. So, I mean, I, I'm really interested in Kit and Wendy's view on this. And I, I am green with that. I'm moving to Melbourne tomorrow. Um, so um, so I think, you know, in terms of, I think it's perf- like, we let's not get too kind of, uh, my view is let's not get too highbrow about this in terms of there's we only call it simulation if it involves cameras and one-way mirrors and you know lots of that i think certainly my work with asanga fernando who's the clinical director of simulation at, at southwest london st george's i think what i took from him was you kind of make it work again thinking about the output so if it's just about you know thinking about adoption of digital health technology and some of the clinical teams that I work with in Oxleys and thinking about the people who are really good at it versus not. In my head, it's about perhaps in a, in a, in a team meeting they have on a, on a Friday afternoon when they're kind of reviewing cases and, and there's maybe a case that they're struggling with and, they, and one person says, hey, what's the role of technology for this person? How can, how can an app or something might help this person? And then it's about maybe kind of rehearsing that with with the team to kind of get that kind of so that that's a form of simulation just that kind of rehearsal what, what happens if they say this how are we going to deal with that situation what happens if the parent doesn't want them to have an app and they feel like they're being fobbed off with it so i think that's perfectly okay and giving teams the confidence to be able to kind of do that level of simulation in that kind of peer-to-peer supervision i think is really helpful i think if you are looking at and the way and this is where i'm super jealous in terms of thinking about some of the challenges we have at a national level thinking about the the the, the huge gap between evidence and implementation and how we kind of cross that gap i think there you're looking for a much more kind of rigorous kind of evaluated approach to simulation and that's where you might need that controlled environment where you can you know, control all the elements, whether that's the Wi-Fi suddenly stopping working or the nature, the, the kind of workflow of the EPR. I think if you're looking for that evidence generation and kind of that controlled environment, then I think you have to have those those kind of high fidelity environments. And, and mental health care takes place everywhere, right? So unless, like if it's, it takes place in an A&E ward, it takes place in a, a in a kind of mental health outpatient setting, it takes place in a G- GP community or primary care setting. So I, I'm, I think, you know, you've, you've got to have lots of different environments. And I love the fact that, it, well, from what I get a sense, you've got a lovely adaptable environment in Melbourne where you can kind of, you can kind of change it into those different, into those different spaces. And that's what you need. 
Thank you, James. And, and Wendy, it would be great if you could maybe respond to that sort of pragmatic versus high fidelity question that James posed. And then Kit, I'll come on to you to talk about the role of simulation when it comes to the high fidelity sort of research um, side of things. So Wendy, first of all, just that pragmatism versus high fidelity, talk to us about that. Yes, I think that we we don't really know the answer to the question in digital health about how much fidelity you need to say we've really adequately validated this for use in a real setting. And so I think that flexibility of from very early on being able to test out, I mean, imagine that you are working with a developer and they have no idea often about the workflows and how it's gonna fit into healthcare. And if you were able to do a very low fidelity simulation with them so that they understand where their tool is going to fit, it could really improve the way that they design and, and develop that tool. Uh, when you're working with with users, whether they're clinicians or patients, being able to even look at really low fidelity drawings of of what the interface might look like and and those kinds of things. So I think there's this this um, phasing from low fidelity up to higher fidelity. And at some point, even the tools that we have in this environment that we've developed may not be high enough fidelity for certain tasks. Thank you, thank you, Wendy. And Hit, come on in. Well, just to say that I think I, I, I really agree with that idea that the you know the the effort of setting up a simulation should be proportionate to the value of the question you're trying to answer or the information you think you'll gain, um, and and I think we're still trying to figure out you know how you gauge that in a way that's reliable and actually you know justifies it. Although having said that, one of the reasons for setting up something like a you know dedicated sim lab is to in general reduce the cost and effort for people who are innovating in this space. So that you know, even if you don't get it quite right, you still end up with higher, higher value intelligence or more complete information than you gain otherwise. Could you tell us a bit, Kit, about the more because you're obviously a researcher. So just talk if you could maybe give us a flavor of research that you you're engaged in through the Validatron that maybe is at that more high fidelity end. Yeah, so maybe a specific example of something we've recently completed in the SimLab. So we have colleagues who are developing a new clinical decision support system that runs in primary care and general practice. And, um, you know, they were interested having got to a, you know, an an early stage prototype to just check that they were still on the right right track and also the added value in clinical consultations. And, and. You know, I think you know the, it's a cliche in digital health that that clinical decision support can run into problems with you know it not fitting into the workflow or it just being perceived to add burden. So they wanted to validate some of those assumptions that this was a useful thing early. So what we were able to do was make use of our GP environment and spin up a, a version of a primary care electronic medical record that's widely used here in Australia, and work with them to essentially customize that to have their new tool running in it. And then we, we we could take a snapshot of that environment and then uh, repeat it multiple times and, and bring in a series of different GPs and simulated uh, patients in this case, although it could have been real patients, to run over a series of scenarios then that exercise different versions of that clinical decision support system. And as each person came in and we ran that scenario, we were able to collect observational data. So we had researchers from that team uh, sitting alongside us uh, observing those encounters, but we also were able to record them. And through a combination of debriefing and then analysis of what actually people did with the tool, they were able to gain insights that enabled them to refine and improve it. So, you know, a a fairly small example, I think, in some ways, but it was uh, something they couldn't have done easily before this kind of facility or these kinds of tools existed. 
Thank you. That's a great example. Um, I'm going to share one that I've been involved with, and then I'm going to ask James to talk about the project that he did in, in London so that we give our listener a, a sort of flavour of different types of um, application of simulation. So um, I've been working with an NHS trust in the north, and we've done all sorts of stuff together. But one project was around photo and video sharing. And um, we'd done some user research that showed that some clinical teams in the community would really like to use photo and video sharing with their patients but there was no way for them to do so within their current systems. And as part of the procurement process to inform the procurement, we initially did some research, identified user needs, and then matched three potential applications against it. We then took test versions of those applications into a simulation, a tabletop simulation environment with a group of clinicians, uh, managers, and the digital team. And we, we simulated their use using flip chart paper and Lego and Sharpies. And out of it, we came up with a really good set of user requirements. And I think the thing that I found most interesting from that process was one it elicited a load of user needs that hadn't been identified through the previous work by people acting out how they would use it in practice and secondly the conversation between the digital team and the clinicians and the managers which enabled them to work out what were like red lines they had to have what what was technically feasible and desirable was absolutely invaluable and it wasn't a conversation that usually took place when it came to procuring so we got this really good set of user requirements to put into a procurement process so so that's how we used it maybe in a a way that isn't often um, thought about. Um, James, I know that you've recently done a project about simulation and testing out. So could you maybe just share that example, please? The project came about because we were thinking about how do we how do we improve uh, the confidence and competence of um, particularly thinking about children and young people, uh, mental health services, the professionals work in children and young people's uh, mental health services and thinking about the opportunity there. There seem to be lots of uh, digital technologies apps that were coming through the pipeline in terms of they appeared you know to be well designed they've been through a kind of rigorous user-centered design process kind of involving young people there's sort of you know evidence that they were kind of effective and uh, were kind of ha- had a had a value but actually what we were struggling with was kind of the uptake if you like of of, of those uh, digital technologies by staff on the basis that actually recommendations by an endorsement, if you like, by health professionals is 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 actually a key part, perhaps, of uptake for, by the public, if you like, and, and by young people specifically in this case. And so really kind of then thinking about how we use simulation as a way of de-risking, if you like, making it safe for health professionals in in children's mental health services to play with to explore to get it wrong and i think that's a that's that's a key value for me is making the cost of failure much much lower and um, far more bearable because the cost of failure in a healthcare system is measured in lives and pain and suffering and that's what to me is one of the the kind of key uh, parts of simulation is it kind of de-risks that for the healthcare system. So bringing those uh, children and young people, prof- uh, children and young people's mental health professionals into that space. And what we we had a very small group of uh, professionals. Unfortunately, COVID rather got in the way of us running this in the way we we got the funding just before COVID. Then COVID came along and kind of rather ruined our uh, our kind of plans. So once we got through COVID, eventually we were able to run this uh, simulation. The scenario we had was a young person who was presenting with a, you know, acutely suicidal in, in A&E, 
and you were being asked as a, a children young people's mental health professional to assess the young person and, and as a part of that then explore with them how technology particularly might play a role and then think about a specific a couple of apps that we wanted them to test out and there were some really lovely kind of unexpected findings right so and this impacts on kind of lots of the strategy that I might have as a CCIO, as a chief clinical information officer, which is it is very difficult to share a screen if that screen with a young person, if that screen is a mobile phone. Right. So you're both. And particularly when you're thinking in the context of COVID and social distancing. Right. People you know, hovering around a little screen. Let me just show you this app here. Let me just show you this app. And it doesn't really work. Whereas an iPad or a, a tablet computer, much bigger. Right. Uh, and obviously, if you're thinking about mobile phone technology, it's not going to work on a laptop that well. So actually, you need a mobile phone type tablet that's going to work, so an iPad or, or similar. And so that was, for me, when I'm thinking about our device strategy as a CCIO for the organization, actually, we need staff to have access to iPads and not take them all away because they've now got a laptop if we want them to be able to showcase and talk through and, and rehearse how a young person might use that technology. So that was one example of really concrete finding that then impacts on kind of wider thinking. I think there was definitely a sense of confidence and uh, and how you need to land the conversation about health technology as a part of a wider care planning conversation. So one, the sort of part B to our scenario was running it with a, a rather angry dad who thought the child was being fobbed off or the young person was being fobbed off uh, with uh, kind of the, the kind of recommendation about using an app uh, to help them manage their mental health. And that was really interesting and challenging for our professionals in terms of how they manage that. And I think they had the skills to manage an angry parent. They've been, they dealt with that or kind of an upset, frustrated parent trying to do that whilst talking about something they felt less confident about in terms of that the technology added that layer of com- complexity that I think they struggled with. And I think out of that came the very clear finding that that we fed back to the app owners, if you like, the health te- the health technology product owners that had been involved in the project, was you need to be able to provide healthcare professionals with information that gives them the confidence to be able to speak eloquently to address the concerns of, uh, of parents. And, and actually, one feedback I, I that stuck in my head was around a peer support platform. And actually, if, if a professional wanted to try out to explore, to experiment with his peer support platform. They had to pretend to be a 14-year-old child, right? They had to pretend to be a young person in order to get access to the platform. Nobody liked that idea. One of the takeaways for me is product owners need to have this kind of simulation mode, if you like, this exploratory mode for professionals so they can play with the technology at home or with their peer group, if you like, in in those team meetings and say, look, if we were going to talk to a young person about this, let's just have a look at it let's just have an explore with it and that was an, another key finding from from the project which i think certainly one of our uh, product owners that worked with us has taken away and developed materials specifically for healthcare professionals thank you james um so some really different applications of, of simulation and and wendy i just wonder whether um you, you've talked a lot about startups and i'd like to hear a bit more about how startups in, engage with this and whether you're having to educate them or whether you've got like a queue of people <laughs> desperate to um engage in in the Belladitron. but have you thought about simulation in in the way that james has described more at the other end of implementation um, yes, definitely. I think that simulation can occur at the very beginning when you're brainstorming the idea. It can occur in thinking about how it fits into the larger environment of the other health IT systems. It can occur in thinking about how you implement it. 
and it can be used to validate some kind of evidence that can give you confidence um, to take it into the real setting where now you're looking at the clinical outcomes without worrying about muddying the waters with the font size and these kinds of things that can really screw up a study. Uh, and, and you think, oh, if we only would have learned that before. So I think it can happen at any of those stages. Um, um, in terms of thinking about companies yeah. and how to work with them, we're just in the very beginning phases of that because we know from, from many companies that we've talked with that there's a great need for this, but it really isn't clear how to work with them on it. And so we're going to be spending this year with about 10 different companies working on individual projects with them to think about what that business model might look like. Um, are, are the expectations that they have aligned with what we can deliver? What are they willing to pay for it? Uh, so I think there's a lot of unanswered questions about how to build those partnerships. And I know that you're thinking about the future. So you have some research funding for the Validity Fund, but you're looking at future sort of sustainability. That's right. Yes. And if we want to have impact, it can't just be for research. We really need to be, you know, helping out that, that industry ecosystem. I'm curious about that funding model and whether, you know, if it's a startup with VC investment, angel investment, whether those investors see this as a good use of money and resource. And maybe there's some education there with VCs. Is that something you've thought about, Kit? Our impression is that this idea of, you know, evidence generation being an activity that people need to consider, particularly as they get towards the idea of launching it, is gradually ratcheting up people's priority list. And, and certainly some of the discussions we've had so far have very much been that sort of instrumental, we need to do testing because we know it's a stage gate to being able to take it to commissioners or payers. But I think that's, a, you know, I think that, you know, in this discussion so far, there's that sense that it could be a missed opportunity to think about the other ways that engaging early with service users and clinicians generally is important, but then also the value of simulation in making some of those things easier or enriching the activities that you can do at earlier stages. I think that that's not on people's radar at all yet. So potentially your clients are not only companies with products, they're also healthcare organisations who want to test out a, a, an implementation before they sort of do it in, in real life. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. James, come on in. I think it's even earlier than that. I think it's understanding the problem in the first place. Like if you're thinking about procuring a new EPR, right, you've got 100 million on the table, right? <laughs> maybe not that much, but certainly maybe over five years, you've got a lot of money, right? I, 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 I can see we, we, have, we have been, certainly I'm talking about NHS here, but I think you can look across the world and maybe see the mistakes here, which is we have, we, we have decided upon, um, you know, EPRs based on a list of, you know, criteria that somebody has written down on a piece of paper, so you know, shared in a meeting with a load of people who have never been near a high, you know, a, a kind of real world uh, frontline kind of uh, emerging crisis kind of situation, A and E, mental health ward, wherever it might be, and they procure it based on a, you know those kind of things. Actually, if if I was procuring an EPR again for our for my trust, I'd be definitely keen to and bring our staff into a simulation environment and just have a really kind of playful approach to understanding what are the problems here. What what how does how does the technology get in the way and how can it help uh, you know kind of manage those situations? And that's that's about human factors. It's about form factors. It's about environment. It's all of those things. And I th I can think of one example in a in a local trust um that um where 
you know, I wish they'd done a bit of simulation because from what I gather, it's not the implementation hasn't gone as well as it might. And I think all of those things could have been foreseen with a little time spent in a simulation lab. So I think, and I, I, there was one more point I was just going to think that I, ju I just want to make before I lose it, which is actually simulate one of the, one of the other reflections we had from our simulation lab is that um, one of the people involved from, um, we were funded by the um, Health Innovation Network in London, which is an innovation network that supports the collaboration between healthcare and, and industry. And one of the people from the HIN who, who observed the simulation said it was absolutely fascinating because I've never seen a mental health assessment before. And actually, if we're thinking about our system leaders who probably don't have exposure to, to these kind of environments and situations, Simulation actually provides a safe way for them to to review and see the reality, or at least as close to the reality as you can. Because actually, the ethics and difficulty of standing in an A and E and kind of imposing yourself on people's uh, moments of distress and suffering aren't great when it comes to kind of the system leaders who work at a very distributed, you know, kind of kind of distant level. Sorry, from the from the centre. So. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a, another value of simulation that can bring across the pipeline that we've talked about. I really like that idea of involving people who wouldn't ordinarily be thinking about the application in practice, but are responsible for the buying side of things just to have exposure to how the real world operates rather than maybe a a fictional care pathway or, or workflow. And one of the things I wish we'd done in the project I described earlier was involve procurement, and we didn't involve them in the process, but I think it would have been really valuable to do that. And I wonder, Wendy and Kit, whether you've thought about not just the startups, but the people who are going to actually be organising the buying of products as well and getting them involved early. Uh, we had a chief quality officer in recently to tour the Sim Lab, and she saw that it could be really valuable for her to be able to test out different uh, products before deciding how to buy them. Because at this point, they don't really know how to choose which products to purchase. And being able to, like you said, James, you know, see them in the real environment, have people interact with them, they get a much more educated um, way of, of making that decision. It also gives industry the chance to really demonstrate what they do in a much more realistic way. Are there any downsides to simulation? I feel like we're all like simulation fanboys and girls here. Is there is is there any pushback kit that you that you get or or downsides that you've experienced or or limitations to simulation where you think actually this isn't quite the right mode for this particular project? I mean, I, I guess I'd have two two observations. One is that I think there is a legitimate and traditional perspective that certain kinds of evaluation are still necessary. Um, at least in some circumstances. So I think the cliche that everything needs an RCT in digital health is well and truly going out the door, but, but still, you know, formal evaluative evidence generation in experimental mode still has a place. And I think if you're going to go down that route, then thinking about, you know, pragmatic study designs that really get to the, the impact of context on the event, you know, the things you're trying to measure is quite important and simulation is necessarily limited in that frame. So, so I think that's one. The other returns to something we discussed or raised earlier in this conversation is about fidelity and when it matters. And I think it's fair to say that the idea of simulation as a methods group or science in digital health is still is still early days. So, so knowing you know what level of fidelity you need for a given scenario and what what ingredients matter in the context of a given simulation, I don't think that's systematized yet. 
um, either, you know, taxonomically or in as embodied practice. I think we're still very much all figuring that out. And James, from your perspective, were, do those do those limitations ring true to you? And, d- and did anything come up in the in the project you did with the hymn around limitations, or where it didn't feel that applicable? One of the limitations that I was that I mean, this again partly reflected COVID. Our, our original uh, plan was to bring the sim lab, have a sort of mobile sim lab experience. So we bring the technology to to our mental health environments now. As a result of COVID, that became we couldn't find a space big enough in our in Oxley's to host that kind of experience. So we had to take our people to the sim lab. At the moment, I think one of the barriers is access. So, you know, it took an hour or so for most of our clinicians to travel over to the sim lab um, and then an hour back, which actually curtailed the amount of time we could spend in the sim lab because they only really had a half a day and many of them had a kind of clinical kind of sessions in the afternoon that they have to get back to. So I think accessibility to high fidelity environments is still relatively limited. And I, I think one of the things that I'm keen to explore is how I, I, I'm thinking about Oxley's here. We've got one option. Uh, one is we continue to work with sort of simulation centers and they come to us with that kind of mobile technology, or we invest in a, in a trust kind of local uh, simulation experience. And then it's about a, Again, think about what's the right balance of, of, of um, a level of high fidelity and, and kind of high tech stuff that we need within that to kind of meet the purposes of the organization. So I think I really love Kit's idea. Maybe this is, feels like a, it could be a, a really nice paper or something. I don't know what, some, something to share with others is a kind of taxonomy, a way of kind of saying, well, if you're trying to achieve these things, this is kind of the methodology that might kind of be enough. And if you're trying to achieve these other things, then, you know, kind of slightly higher fidelity level of evidence generation, then you kind of need this level of specification. I think it's the kind of accessibility and the cost. And I suppose it's interesting. I think one of the things that I are constantly drawn back to is the kind of thinking around scarcity. Right. Often the response I get from uh, clinicians and frontline, we don't have the time to go to the sim lab to do this thing and learn how to do it better or do it differently. Right. So. We're just going to have to keep doing the way that we've already done it or and we've always done it. And and you're like, really, actually, if you if we if you we could just have half a day of your time, we might help you find a different way of meeting the challenges of the level of demand that we've certainly got in, in the NHS at the moment. So I think there's something about really being clear about the value in order to overcome that kind of scarcity response that you tend to get, certainly in the NHS at the moment. I'd really agree with that. And I think the biggest sort of challenge with this sort of approach or any sort of user-centered design approach is persuading people that if they go a bit slower at the beginning, they'll go faster later on. If you don't implement something well, you spend a lot of time having to sort it out. But that time isn't quantified in quite the same way as it is early up. And people are often against deadlines, often artificial deadlines around year ends that sort of um, influence certain behaviours, I guess. And I'm, I'm sure that's the case for colleagues in uh, Australia as well. I can see some nods. <laughs> um, listen, we're just about out of time. So what I'd like to do is just invite each of you to maybe share a reflection about if we were to really get simulation much better embedded from where we are now, what would be the one thing that you'd you'd hope for that might make a bit of a game-changing difference? And and Wendy, I'll start with you if that's okay. Well, I think some of the areas where simulation is going to be really important uh, coming, coming up is artificial intelligence. 
There's going to be a ton of new types of applications that people are going to want to try. And we already know that very little of this has been translated into practice. That's not going to change suddenly. And so we need to be able to think about how those things get put into place. A second area is um, how you pay for new models of care. And so as we start pushing more care into the home, those don't fit uh, and align with the payment models that we have in all of our countries. And so uh, being able to do simulations that help model different ways to pay for it and generate evidence that's going to, to resonate with the potential funders, I think will be an important part. And I know I didn't answer your question because I this was going to lead into the answer to your question. What's the answer then? <laughs> Remind me the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would make the most difference? So what would be like game changing for you in your simulation lab that you'd really like to see? That was a good answer though. I was very interested in the funding models bit, which is a massive barrier. But yeah, back to you, Wendy. So I would say to, to really address those questions and do what James said and ask the questions at the beginning of the project, you really need a lot of different types of expertise. So the the digital ecosystem and the physical immersive simulation lab are a big part of it, but you really need diverse experts who are going to be participating and guiding you in the co-design, in the technology, economic simulations, in the the different types of evaluations to, to answer those questions. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, over to you, Kit. You know, anything we can do to raise awareness and an appreciation of the value of simulation methods amongst all the stakeholders who ultimately, you know, gatekeep and can advocate for their use is probably a, you know, a valuable thing to do at this stage. We have examples of how it can create value in a whole range of different ways. And as we've seen throughout the course of this chat, but I, you know, to return to something I think, you know, James was saying as a theme there are there is a sense i think at which you know this now needs support from senior leaders and senior stakeholders um to say you know this has value and this needs to fit into how we think about innovation and bringing innovation into practice um because otherwise you're not going to be able to address the you know the the, the capacity and skills barriers because it's not enough just to have physical environments you need to be able to use them uh, and and also that sort of permission to take time away from the clinical cold face to then do some of this um so, so i think there's a you know, how do we galvanize people who, who can see the potential into this and enable them to, 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 to do more of it? Thank you, Kit. And over to you, James. I absolutely agree with Wendy's focus on building cross-functional teams and, you know, kind of bringing together multidisciplinary kind of uh, professionals. For me, part of that is about, you know, kind of living the digital culture. Like you, digital is something that there's that blog. Digital is something you are, not something that you do. And I think part of what simulation brings with it, and if we kind of truly adopt it in a kind of digital way, is it's a playfulness. It's an acceptance that that failure is an inevitable kind of part of complex adaptive systems, but that we can do it better, that we can fail better. And I think that's something that our leaders, if you like, need to begin to find the space to accept, understand and make space for for others, because we spend a lot of money failing. And we in very small ways and very big ways, you know, the NHS budget around failure in terms of um, what we have to what we have to indemnify ourselves in terms of the cost is huge. And I think we, if we, we used five percent of that to look at how we might use simulation to fail safer, quicker, whatever, better earlier in the process or across the process when it comes to innovation and change, I think we'd we'd probably notice a huge difference. So I think that's 
that's that's I think it's that culture thing really that I think a mindset thing that needs to change and and I guess finally I suppose my work with clinical teams is I guess focused on habits like how can we make it habitual that they play with these things in that kind of low fidelity simulation way like I say actually practicing with their colleagues in their in their team meetings and say look I'm really struggling with how I might talk to a young person about this app I think it might be really good can I just kind of play that play that back with you that's again I think would be game changing because isn't every Victoria, about five or six, eight years ago, I can't remember when it was, we talked about everyday conversations about technology. And I suppose it's about giving staff the confidence that they can have everyday uh, conversations about technology as a part of care planning. Yes, I think these things take time, don't they, James? Um, Listen, thank you so much to all three of you, Wendy, Kit and um, James, for joining me today on this podcast. And um, I think it's fair to say that James and I are going to be packing our bags and catching a plane over to Melbourne to um, come and hang out in the Validatron. (laughs) Um, But yeah, really um, super impressed by what you're doing in Melbourne and and wish you lots of luck with developing over the next few years. Um, Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Please like, subscribe and review via the usual channels. My book Towards a Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton.